The heart is a bloom It shoots up through the stony ground And there's no... The internet is... And also some other things about our culture combined with that, including a, a lot of emphasis on productivity and the consumption and productivity being kind of the only forms of feeling like you're of, of you're making accomplishment or having a meaningful life. These things combined make it so that we can really run through our entire lives um, and, and miss a lot of, again, what I would call reality. That was Esther Emery, and she has written a book called What Falls from the Sky. And it is her journey of unplugging from the internet for an entire year. It's so well written. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And my conversation with Esther created a kind of space, uh, for me anyway, that made me re-examine some of the ways in, that I look at how I fill the spaces in my life. And uh, so I loved my conversation with Esther. I really, really loved her book. Again, it's called What Falls from the Sky. You can get it anywhere you buy books. I'll put the links on my show notes. Uh, so get into that and enjoy this interview. Before we get into that, though, just a reminder that my newest book, which is called Whole, Restoring What's Broken in Me, You, and the Entire World, is just about to release into the wide, wild world. So you can go to steveweens.com slash whole to find out all about it, how you can buy it and share it. I hope that you do that. So without any further ado, though, enjoy my conversation with Esther Emery. Man, I am so glad that this finally worked out. Uh, I When you sent me your book, I um, started reading it immediately in my backyard. And it was like one of those times where, you know, sometimes when I'm reading books, you know, they're good. This time it was like I was immediately drawn in. You're such a good writer. And the story is so compelling to me. Uh, and it's your life. So, I mean, that should be a good thing for you to hear. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think that, that this, this story has some of the most beautiful moments that I've had the opportunity to experience in my life. And uh, I appreciate that. that that you can experience that as a reader. That's definitely what the intention was. Well, and I mean, I'll, I'll get into this too, but essentially, I mean, your book is about a year that you took off of the internet for various reasons. And you write about your marriage and you write about some struggles you have with it. And what was so compelling to me from the very, I mean, from the first pages was I was immediately drawn into the tension of it. And that's what I love the most. I, think. I, I could feel like, the, I could feel the, oh no, she's going there. Um, and that's what I loved most about it. So um, I have a bunch of questions, Esther. So do you mind if we just dive in? Yeah, sounds great. I'm ready. Okay. So talk to me about your spiritual background, uh, you know, your family, what did you grow up believing? Um, and then take us all the way up until you started, you know, the point at which you started writing this book. Well, I can't tell you about my faith without telling you something about my mother and my unusual upbringing. My mother's name was Carla Emery, and she was an author and speaker in what we now call the Back to the Land movement. So she had been raised a farmer's daughter, um, and she lived in a rural life in the 60s and 70s. And the way 
like she told it, these, these people started coming out into rural communities looking for this hippie lifestyle or wanting to reconnect with the land. And the way she, she told it, they had no skills and she felt sorry for them. She literally thought that these city people who were trying to reconnect with the land were going to kill themselves. <laughs> she did it her life's work, um, first gradually and then with a great deal of passion to record country living skills and food self-sufficiency skills, to record all this information and to share it. And she, she raised us in this, um, this kind of odd world of, of traveling frequently and communicating with all the people who were interested in self, food self-sufficiency, which as, as time progressed into the 80s and 90s, turned out to be a lot of fringe communities. Yeah. And that brings us to your question of faith. She was very comfortable as a born-again Christian. She was very comfortable with seeing the Jesus that she loved in all sorts of places. And so she was comfortable at an Episcopalian church. She was comfortable in very fundamentalist, possibly even concerning kinds of communities. I mean, kinds of communities that you might be concerned about the degree of fundamentalism. She was comfortable in those kind of environments. And then also with hippies and yeah. drum circles and this kind of new age spirituality. So as a child, I was both amazed by her just tremendous love of Jesus and her like the, the kind of childlike faith that she had. And I was also just completely cynical because yeah. it didn't seem to have a through line. It didn't seem to have any, it didn't seem to be true because it wasn't grounded in something that seemed consistent to me. So as a teenager, I became extremely resistant to anything having to do with Christianity. I declared myself an atheist. I said, this is, it just isn't working. You know, you just, yeah. you, you cover your, your eyes when you look at all the bad stuff regarding faith and you just have this kind of childlike perspective of it and I don't buy it. And I then spent, gosh, almost 15 years feeling like I might have some kind of corner of my heart left that I that would still be connected to Jesus, but nothing I was going to reveal in a public way. Yeah. Wow. Wow. The way you describe your mom is so interesting. <laughs> like born again Christian who's comfortable in all these different environments, even like that right there. I'm like, wow, that you just don't hear that very often. You do not hear that very often, but it also makes sense. I think that, um, perhaps you grew up with some, especially reading about sort of, um, how you think and how your mind works, how, how that might have, um, translated into some cynicism for you. So, um, okay. We're, so bring us up to speed. Like when, when the book starts, you are a successful playwright. Your husband is also in the theater. So you have this crazy life of what I would assume late nights and a lot of drivenness. And then you make this crazy decision to unplug from the internet for a full year. So tell me, tell us, tell us what, what was behind that decision? Well, it was every kind of crisis. Everything went wrong. And I definitely, I feel my first gift that I've received in this life was to experience success at a relatively young age. In my 20s, I was a theater director and a, a, a produced playwright. And, and as a 20-something-year-old woman, that's quite an accomplishment. You yeah. know, I had articles written about me, and I accepted awards, and I had this kind of 
feeling of, okay, I, I fought for something and I can do it. But the second gift that I was given was this uh, equivalent sense of failure. Almost as soon as I felt like I had some kind of success, I had just as many problems. My marriage had a serious issue or several serious issues. My, my marriage wasn't, didn't really seem like it was going to even hold together. And then I had problems with my career as well. I ended up walking out of a rehearsal feeling like I couldn't do the work anymore. So here I am, someone who has believed that I was on the right path and just fighting tooth and nail to make it in an extremely competitive field and feeling like I don't, I don't have, didn't have any of it anymore. I didn't, I, I didn't know that I was successful in relationships and I didn't know that I was successful in my career. And so I was really willing to make a very drastic change in my life to try and restore, try and find my, my footing again, because the crisis really was a huge one, kind yeah. of everything ripped out from under me. And so it was worth it to me to b make a big move to try and find my way again. And were you living in New York City at this time? Am I, am I getting that right? No, I, I had, I had worked a bit in New York city, but I, my base was in California. And then when my husband and I decided to stay together, because there was a point that we actually separated and then we decided to stay together. I, I also stopped working and we moved across the country to Boston. Actually. Oh, that's right. That's right. California to Boston, basically for a job and for a chance, kind of a new start. And I went from being uh, a professional theater director who who worked constantly and was in environments where people admired me or looked up to me constantly to being across the country away from all my friends and a stay-at-home mom of two very small children. So it was a huge change that I had just gone through. Wow. I mean, yes, that is so intense. And there was even a point at which I remember your husband sort of asked you, like, do you think this is a good idea? <laughs> right. Um, didn't he ask you that? And then what was your response? About the year without internet? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a good idea, Steve. I mean, it doesn't seem like a smart thing to do. My husband asked and so did my brother. I have a my brothers are very, um, a couple of my brothers, but one in particular are, are strong characters in this story because they're important in my life. And both my husband and my brother in their completely different ways said, you know, this is, this doesn't seem like a really great idea. It, <laughs> it may be that you're just wallowing it in it. You know, you've already had a certain amount of suffering and now you just want to make it worse. And what's funny, Steve, is that I think that they're there was some element of self-destructiveness in it. I, I think that this, this, the decision to go for a year without internet was guided both by my good angel and my bad angel. Yep. There was some deep inside me that said, if you can just get rest, you can find your way again. You can make it get better. And there was also something in me that was like, oh, let's just blow it all up. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was kind of, following both of those impulses. And, and as this, as the, the year progressed, I was for better or for worse, I was forced to really look closely at what I wanted and what I was trying to accomplish. And that was one of the greatest gifts of the experiment that, that the gift of self-examination. Well, I, I even love how you said that you were guided by both your, you know, sort of bad angel and good angel. 
And as I reflect on a lot of the decisions in my life, I think that's true about most of them. You know, I, I, I don't think, my opinion here, but I don't think that we can really um, um, place our hope in the fact that we have a pure motive about anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Like, yeah, yeah go ahead. Well, I, yeah. So, yeah, okay. So you are in Boston. You're a stay at home. You're a playwright turned stay at home mom, which I mean, I don't even have any idea how that worked. Your husband's working all these crazy, crazy hours and you make this decision to um, go off the internet for a year, but you're going to do some writing about it, right? I mean, you are, you're chronicling this year. Mm-hmm. And so, t- and, and you would like send, wouldn't you send, you know, because you can't email, I mean, you can't post a blog, you can't, so, you, um, so you send basically a thumb drive to your friend who then posts it for you. So w- like, tell me about even that process of being off the internet, but writing about it. Right. Well, in here are all the problems with my original plan. You know, you start <laughs> see the mice getting into the works here, right? <laughs> I first thought that I would write a paper letter to a different person every day. And that, and I actually did do that for a long time and it was great. And I sort of would tell about my day and then send it off to the person. But it only, it only took about a month for me to realize that that's actually not what letters are for. That the, this kind of chronicling your own life and kind of tossing it out into the public is how the internet works. Yeah. But when, when you're doing a written correspondence, that's about a relationship and respecting the person that you're writing to and just kind of practicing your storytelling. Is There was a, a, a deep problem there with my perception and even compassion and respect for my friends as I was doing that. So then the second plan was to put up just one update per month on my website. I hadn't been a, primarily a writer for the internet, um, but I had had a website, yeah. um, of course. And so I thought, well, I'll just update once a month. I'll have my friend put up these updates and it'll be my way of telling people what it's like. Because here I have, this is like 10,000 leagues or 20,000 leagues under the sea, right? I'm going on this exploring journey away from the internet. And I want to send back to the colonies, you know, send back to the world this idea of what it's like. But I found uh, about halfway through after doing it six times, uh, actually my sister called me on it. She said, you're not off the internet if you're still doing this. Why don't you just give it up? And I had a a crucial moment of self-discovery there because my heart almost broke. Mm -hmm. I really, really didn't want to. I didn't want to give up this opportunity to kind of present myself on the internet once a month in whatever form I wanted to. I didn't want to give up that ability to present a a character version of myself that I had total control over. There was a kind of nakedness Mm. to no longer being able to do that, that I didn't want to face. And that was at the halfway mark of my year without internet and and a huge important moment when I decided to stop doing that and accept that feeling of nakedness and vulnerability of not being able to control my own narrative and really set myself into the hands of God, into the hands of what I might also call reality and accept what was really happening without my editorial uh, corrections. Yes. Oh my goodness. Well, I really want to ask 
sort of, you know, how you found God and, 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 but, but before that, how do you think the, like over participating in the internet contributes to just sort of hiding in our illusory self? And how did you discover that? Because that's what it sounds like you're talking about. Absolutely. And I think we should, we should take note here that this is a universal human thing yeah. and it's a thing about our particular place and time. So, I mean, we all want to run away from our problems. Cavemen wanted to run away from their problems. I mean, the, we did, the internet didn't invent that. Right. That have ways to hide from your, really your spiritual journey into being bare to your own compassion and having an open opening, more compassionate, vulnerable heart. We don't all run out because we want to do that kind of work. <laughs> so right. I think that's very universal. But I, I also feel like in this time, the internet is, and also some other things about our culture combined with that, including a, a lot of emphasis on productivity and the consumption and productivity being kind of the only forms of feeling like you're, of, of you're making accomplishment or having a meaningful life. These things combined make it so that we can really run through our entire lives yeah. um, and, and miss a lot of, again, what I would call reality, the moments of our lives and relationships with one another. Not saying that you can't have relationships on the internet, because I think you definitely can. But if everything is moving at this rapid pace and everything is in the, the context of production and consumption, when do we have moments where we are vulnerable? When do we have moments when we, when our hearts open and become more, uh, less shielded and more available to one another? And that, that really was the discovery that I was beginning to make as I dropped off the internet, finding that when I let go of that control over my own identity, as I was presenting it in the internet, I, I was becoming more open to who the who reality was telling me I was and also who God was telling me I was and, and not constructing that like an engineer, if that makes any sense. Oh my gosh. Yes. I am just like, if you could see me right now, my arms are raised. I am giving you a 17 universal high fives right now. Um, that is so beautiful and so true in my experience. So talk about how that led you to sort of hearing how God describes you and, and how you met God through this. Well, this is, this is the most amazing story. And this is why I have a book really, Steve, is that I did not go into this with any intention of looking for faith. I was going to talk about the internet. I was going to talk about society and culture. And literally I had not been off the internet for three weeks before I found myself in a church and then at the doors of the church and kind of processing this deep longing that I had been hiding possibly for, you know, almost 15 years, this deep longing for a, a faith experience and, and maybe just very specifically just to be with Jesus, just to find Jesus and have that kind of connection. And you have to understand, Steve, not everyone in your audience will, will, will be able to, um, to, to know this. So I need to describe it. Yeah. I had been very cynical and associating primarily with atheists for 15 years. Yeah. My husband was, was an atheist. My brother was an atheist. Like the people that I 
trusted and communicated with most had no touch point for this. And so when I said, I, this is what I need to do, they, they couldn't really hear that. And so what, what the wonderful thing about this story is that I ended up being let off the hook so gently by my year without internet. I, I told my husband on a Sunday morning that I was going to a poetry, uh, not a workshop, but like, um, it was a gathering of people that met on Sundays at a bagel shop and they shared their poetry. And, and I, I had, we had talked about me having the Sunday kind of off from parenting, you know, people sometimes need a break. And so I got on the train headed up towards Cambridge, planning to go all the way up to Somerville to this bagel shop for this poetry thing. And I literally got off at the wrong stop. I literally did not know what I was doing. I walked across the Boston Common, not knowing where I was going, and yet somehow knowing exactly where I was going until I was standing across the street from this beautiful church that I knew only because I had attended for Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah. Not for particular faith-based reasons. You know, some people go to church on Christmas Eve just to sing the carols. Yeah. I had a relationship with this church, sort of, and I just found myself there. And there's, you know, the the streets in the Back Bay of Boston are, they're highways. So there's three lanes of traffic between me and this giant Gothic church with these wide open doors, and I can hear music coming out of the church. And I just stood there and cried and thought, "This, this is what I need. And to have the grace and ability to the forgiveness that it takes to say, you know what, you don't have to justify anything. You don't have to justify the last 15 years of not wanting to be here. You don't even have to tell your husband where you're going. Just come in. Yeah. It was an, an amazing moment. And I think that's it's because that happened to me and because I allowed it to happen to me that I have this story to share and that I was able to write this book. I love how you said that. Like, it doesn't, you know, the 15 years, it's not like you had to make up for that. Well, now you have to do penance for at least a year to, you know, sort of make up for all the wandering you did. No, it was like, no, there you are, and you can just go right in and start right there. And, you know, God was with you the whole time in the 15 years, and God is with you now. And I love that. Esther, I love that. That is so beautiful. Um, wow. Yeah, it's the gifts really the, and I and that's again the, the reason why I have a story and it's also also the reason why I tell the story I think to be able to to share the the unfathomable power of forgiveness and this is a, a, something we toss around all the time you know yeah. outside of but certainly in the church oh sure it's amazing it's so amazing we use these really big words <laughs> <laughs> but to be able to say, this is my story of it. And I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm just going to show you how it happened. That I came into this situation with a lot of hopelessness and having built a lot of systems to deal with that hopelessness. You know, I don't have necessarily any faith security, but I'm going to be the best at everything I do. And I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to, I'm going to be a superstar on the internet or in whatever field I choose to be able to transition from that, from working so hard for every bit of meaning and self-respect to just simply receiving such beauty and hope. That, that's a story that I think we, we need to multiply. Like we need to lift up that possibility and share it with one another. It, it's, a, it's a hope for a better way of living. Gosh, well said. 
So how did you take this reality back to your atheist husband and your family and your friends? Well, you know, I took a little bit slowly. My, <laughs> husband, my husband was completely wonderful, though, because, yeah. and you haven't necessarily touched on this, but my husband, my husband and I were completely in crisis. There was infidelity yeah. in our marriage. And, you know, it was at a time when we weren't completely sure that we could be married. I mean, we got together kind of young and we'd been living um, without a really clear direction. And so the idea that we were going to divorce and live def different lives was a very real idea for us over some time. And when we decided that that wasn't what we wanted, that our marriage really mattered and we wanted to make that work again, there there was just some painful stuff between us that we were going to have to restore. And it was going to take, some, you know, nothing less than a miracle, really, to kind of have restoration and comfort with each other after feeling a really great pain. But right around the same time that I felt like going to church, some kind of amazing things were happening in our relationship where I wasn't on the internet and I wasn't feeling any kind of um, obligation to, gosh, I have to be the best at things and I have to spend hours and hours in the workforce showing people how awesome I am. Um, and my, my behavior in my family and my relationship really changed. I became more emotionally available, hmm. more calm, more just kind of able to be silent and together and kind. Um, and so my husband was like, whatever you are doing, keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so when he heard I wanted to go to church, it was kind of like, okay, well then let's try this. This is, there's something here. There's something happening that we want. So he's been, he was incredibly supportive almost from the very beginning. Wow. Well, that, I mean, that's a testament to your love together and to him and to you that, you know, you weren't some super obnoxious new, new Christian that demanded that everybody believe exactly what she believed. You know what I mean by that? I mean, that, that could have happened. You know, you, you, you could have come back demanding that everybody see things exactly as you saw them. But instead, it sounds like your transformation became this beautiful just statement about a better way to live. Um, I love that. Well, and I think that that's a testament to the gift I was given, Steve. I mean, I mean, nobody proselytized to me. Yeah. The gift that I was given of an opportunity to re-enter a space that, I mean, I was like, I was like Paul here. I, I literally denounced the church Yeah. and then was kind of welcomed back in as if none of that had ever happened. <laughs> so yeah. I was not on any ground to preach to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all I wanted to do was just kind of be, just be, be there, just be present and kind of allow things to unfold. And that, again, is I think that that actually has a ripple effect, that when one person receives a gift like that, that really comes without any strings, without any uh, charge to it, without any cost, then you can then give it just as freely. And that becomes something that can expand and, and really heal more than one person, but just continue to ripple on. So true. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, we could talk about that forever, my, my sense is, and hopefully little threads of it will come back in and out of the rest of this conversation. But uh, over time throughout this year, you got really into cooking and gardening, right? Which is, doesn't sound like something that a playwright uh, 
um, driven, you know, playwright would get into. So did that surprise you? And, and talk to me about sort of that journey. Yes. And in some ways there are parallels to the whole church thing. So yeah. back back to the beginning of our conversation today and remember that my mother yes. was a, a professional in the world of sharing basically homemaking skills. She was an excellent cook and an excellent gardener. And those were her skills. And I had renounced her in all ways, not just her faith. We had a kind of a rocky um, separation. So one version of the story is that is that I, I ran away. Um, another version of the story is that is that we just um, we just couldn't make the mother daughter thing work. And mother daughter relationships are so charged for so many people. I think a lot of people out there probably can relate. Yeah. And um, when I was fifteen, I stopped speaking to my mother at all for almost ten years. Um, and in that time, I almost, I almost completely forgot that I ever knew how to run a canner or a pressure canner and to store my own food. You know, I almost forgot that I knew how to milk a goat or how to grow a garden, you know, yeah, <laughs> I completely pushed this stuff away, um, to the, to the extent that I had to relearn from scratch and that desire to be connected to the bread making and the gardening came to me with the same kind of bubbling up truth that my desire for Jesus did. I'm, I'm not trying to say that they're the same thing, but it was that that same feeling of this isn't my version that I'm present, presenting to the world. This isn't something I'm engineering. It's it's coming up from a more honest place. It's 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 moving from my truth center into my brain and I don't I don't have that much choice about it. I yeah. I actually need to follow this and see where it leads. So I ended up becoming I'm really into cooking and really into gardening and my life now has gone even further in that direction. So it it started me off to to a, a new phase of life that's that has borne a lot of fruit in the years since. Yeah, and now you guys live in Idaho, right? And for a while you lived in a yurt. And I tell us because not many people know what a yurt is. Y U R T. Now you live in a cabin, but for a while you lived in a yurt. So how did how did the how did the theater husband and and um, you know uh, ex playwright wife and family move to Idaho and, and decide to live in a yurt? Well, you know, someone said to us that our life is a bit like being struck by lightning twice. And I think that there's some truth to that when it comes to our homesteading journey. Um, Idaho is actually where my husband and I are both originally from. Um, and these are things that we ran away from and hid. We wanted to be city kids. We wanted to be theater people. Um, we didn't want to be the kind of country kids, especially in an era when rural life in America is, is very challenging. It's really hard to make it because their communities struggle and their funds, it, it, the situation with farming across America is such that, that, that communities are not thriving, are not rich with opportunity in, in rural America. So the idea that we were going to return to our roots really was a huge surprise. <laughs> <laughs> it did for both of us. And my husband's version of all of that 
was a little different from mine. So remember, I was really into cooking. I wanted to get my own hands into my livelihood. I wanted to be responsible for where my food was coming from, even make my own clothing, practicing those old crafts of self-care and getting out of that production consumption model that we talked about earlier. Well, so my husband looks at that same version and the same concept, same ideas, and he says, okay, so for me, what that means is moving to the woods and building a house out of trees. I was like, um, honey, I don't think that's the same thing. (laughs) 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 I mean, it is, because if you look at his skill set as a carpenter, he was in the future, but he was always on the side of building things. He's an excellent builder. For him, living a life more connected to reality and more connected to a sense of personal responsibility, uh, really seeing your own tracks, how you move through the world and, and what kind of what kind of damage you're making and also what kind of restoration you're providing, for him that involved building. And so we ended up off the grid, in the woods, and to your question about the yurt, it's, it's like if a house and a tent got married and had a baby, they'd have a yurt. <laughs> It's like it's kind of a tent and kind of a house, but it's lovely. It's a round room. I'm in it right now. Yeah. This is where it's now my office. Um, and, and it's got a lattice work um, structure. The walls actually fold up so that it can be uh, carried to another location. Um, and it has a, 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 a fair amount of insulation. So it's not just like tent camping, but right. less than a house. And we lived in it with three children, Steve, for three years. Wow. 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 Yeah. I mean, give me the square footage of this yurt. Well, it's 314 because of pi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. So time out. You and your husband and your three kids lived in 314 square feet for three years. We did. We did. And it was amazing. It was amazing. And how old were your kids at that time? Well, my youngest was just born. So I had a, um, let me see, five, five, three, and six months when we first moved here. Wow. 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 Yeah. Wow. yeah and you know what? It, it really was an adventure. Yeah. And we had no electricity and were carrying our own water. For yeah. two years. And we didn't even install solar panels until we had been here for a while. And you know, to understand why this has value to me, you, you have to be able to imagine how the year without internet had value to me. I, I discovered when I went off the internet that truth happens when you strip away some of the trappings. And it wasn't really about hurting ourselves. It wasn't suicidal or self-destructive in so much as it was just this trying to strip down to what really matters and feeling like I only get to live this life once. I only get one shot at this. I want these moments to feel like reality. I want them to have this kind of deep reality, like, like art or literature or the, you know, the things that really matter. And, and that's why my husband and I were willing to kind of run out to the woods and even raise our family in what people might consider to be kind of extreme conditions because we knew there's there's truth there there's kind of spiritual truth there and and relationship truth there and and we we did indeed find that to be the case wow so i i have another question because here we are on the internet talking 
So there was a there was a moment when you went back on the internet. I mean, you know, uh, maybe you opened up your Gmail account or how was that? How was the reintroduction into life uh, back on the grid in that way? Well, I wish I'd been wearing a clown nose because it was just comedy. I mean, it was just <laughs> comedy, especially because at the end of my year without internet, come especially the last month or so. I felt so wise yeah. and accomplished in a different way. I mean, it wasn't that sense of like, I people admire me accomplished, but it was this sense of kind of freedom and understanding. I, I definitely felt like, wow, I've been on a journey that went somewhere. And I definitely understand some things about myself and about what matters and how to be who I want to be, you know, how to tackle that issue of we, we do what we don't want to do or we, you know, that, that whole idea of I, I do what I hate. Yeah. It felt like I'd gotten a little, you know, a little leg up on that, right? And then I got back on the internet and that very moment, I literally pushed my children away. I literally did not feed them lunch on my first day back on the internet. It was like, whoa, it's so easy to lose it all. Yeah, It can just vanish like a puff of smoke. And I think the lesson from that, that I w would love to, to, to share what I, what I think can be learned from that, is to respect that the internet and various other things that have addictive potential really are powerful. And we aren't invulnerable. We aren't fortresses. Right. And so you put yourself in a situation where there are rewards for doing certain things, you're going to do them. Yeah. Even if you felt five minutes before that you were above all of that and couldn't possibly be touched, you, you know, there, oh, these yeah. things do affect us. And I think that's the lesson there. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> like I said that there are rewards for certain things and you will do what you will hustle for those awards, no matter what you think. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, um, you also wrote about how you sort of had this secret desire that you'd become famous, like the woman who went off the grid for a year. <laughs> um, talk about how that maybe ebbed or flowed during or after, after your year off the grid. Right. Well, and here's another thing where there's a connection between a cultural, like at the time of our and condition of our culture, and then also individual personality. So I was raised by a person with a significant following in the world. My mother was on TV and she was interviewed and she, her book has sold 750,000 copies. And so I think I entered the world with some kind of an expectation that that's, that that was a role model yeah. that maybe having people following me and thinking I was cool is actually how to grow up. Um, and I think that our, our culture right now has a lot of that. And part of why my story I think is useful for people, maybe even particularly of the millennial generation is that I think a lot of us now are raised with this idea that the best thing to be, or, or really almost a necessity of growing up is to have a platform, right? A necessity of growing up is to have a following, to have a message and to have that resonate, to be able to, you know, we use these words, convert and connect or connect and convert. You know, the, this is, this is life. This is what you do in life is you get famous. And I, I think that I was forced to, um, to find out if I have value without all of that. 
And mm. thank goodness, Steve, I discovered that I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would have been a really big problem if I'd gone off the internet. <laughs> I just wanted to die. Like, <laughs> thank goodness I discovered that. And I think there's compassion to this too. There's a really beautiful necessity and opportunity for compassion when we realize that not only do I still have value when I'm not famous, when I'm not producing, when I'm not fulfilling some kind of obligation to society, but so do other people. Yeah. And then I have to look differently at, you know, how in the, in the Bible we might find the, the characters of the, of the lepers or the, or the, the you know, the, the outcasts. And, and we say, oh, so that's actually, this is, that's an expression of this same lesson that I still have value even when I'm not producing for society. And so does everybody else. I mean, it kind of gives me chills to think about it. I almost think, well, no wonder I worked so hard at trying to not see that. Because when you see it, think about what kind of obligations you have. Think about like then how you have to change your behavior right. when you recognize the profound value of humans, regardless of whether or not they have a hundred or one hundred thousand Instagram followers, right? right. You, you realize, oh, I have to be more humble. I have to be more generous. I have to let go of some ego. And maybe I don't really want to do any of that. So I'll add, I'll add to that because an interesting thing that's happened to me since then is that I did write a book. Yep. And I'm talking to you now about the book I did write. Yep. Um, and so I've had to go around the whole circle again. You know, I, I, some people say that the spiritual journey is like a spiral. Yeah. <laughs> And I definitely have been, I've been right through the same tracks, the feeling of, uh, I, I really need people to read this book because otherwise I, it wasn't worth writing or it, it wasn't worth the time that the editor spent with me. I, I, I have to get my message out there and this kind of like tooth and nail feeling to that. And then also kind of coming around the bend and going, Oh, no, it actually works the best when it's a generous impulse. It works the best when it comes from a gift. Remember that gift that I got, that I was given this gift of insight and forgiveness. And it works the best when I just give it generously and don't demand some kind of following or or status related to that. And And I feel like I just keep chewing over that again and again. And you know what? If that's my bone to pick for my life, there's there's worse things. You know, there's worse journeys <laughs> than that one, I think. Yeah, I agree. It's a spiral. And what's frustrating about that, that it is a spiral, is that, you know, have you ever thought like, man, I thought I was going to be over that by now? Like, I, I really thought at age 47, 46, I would be over that need to impress people. <laughs> and yet, I am not, you know. Um, and we're just, and it's not like we don't move. Uh, towards grace, towards God, towards generosity, but we don't necessarily completely overcome these major bad angels, maybe if you want to call it that way. And so, thank you for that. That was a that was a gem. That was a golden nugget um, that I'm gonna think about for quite a while after our conversation. Um, okay, my last question, Esther, is. A bit of a tricky question. You might have an answer for it. You might not. But is there anything that you wished I would have asked you that I didn't? Um, that, 
is a hard question. <laughs> I think I love just conversing and seeing where the where the conversation goes. But I I think I I never get tired of talking about hope. And I never get tired of talking about the the necessity of and the importance of sharing your stories of hope. I think if there's any criticism that I have of myself writing this this book, What Falls from the Sky, and the and sort of the, the life that I've been um, that I've been sharing, it's that sometimes I get caught up in just my version of the story, and I want people to fund my revelations and my kind of uh, spiritual development and. And I, I love to remember anytime that I'm in contact with another person, I love to remember that the greatest gift is to be able to just tell someone there is hope. And even if you're as broken as I was, even if, you know, on the first, the first page of this book, I was, I was driving 113 miles an hour on a, on a freeway in California thinking that my marriage was over and, and I was, and I didn't have any place to go. And I, I end the book with so much hope and potential for goodness and having received so many gifts. And I think the most important thing that I can share anytime that I have the opportunity is to say, uh, it's possible. Really amazing transformation is possible. And thing, nothing is so broken that it can't come to life again. So if you, if I had asked, if I'd wanted you to ask one question, it would be something that I could give that answer to. Mm, beautiful. Oh gosh, that's good. Well, I have just, I have, this conversation has been so delightful, Esther, for me, and I can't wait for people to hear it. Um, and folks, you're going to want to go on whatever, wherever it is that you buy books. And you're going to want to get this book, Esther Emery, What Falls from the Sky. How I Disconnected from the Internet and Reconnected with the God Who Made the Clouds. It is really, really good writing, and it's a really beautiful, raw, sometimes compelling story uh, about Esther's journey with um, going off the Internet and finding God. It's so good. So you're going to want to get that. Um, so thank you, Esther, so much for your passion, for your vulnerability, your honesty. I really did love this conversation. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation for me as well. I feel rejuvenated by it. I appreciate oh, that. Good. Well, enjoy the rest of your day in the yurt <laughs> or wherever it is that you find yourself. And I'm going to leave you with the mantra that um, I end the podcast um, every week. So um, this is this good word and we're uh, reclaiming what's holy about our humanity. And so the mantra is we are dust and breath. We're limited and limitless. We're human and holy and we're in it together. So um, thank you so much, Esther, for being a part of our journey. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Ween's author. Twitter at Steve Weens and Instagram at Steve Weens. And you can find all my work, all my books, the show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash this good word.
in your suburban back.